0: of funny that all these shows are around and those kind of things about relationships are around and I think they reflect actually a a period of time in our history where we've started to think about relationships in very different ways. I think what's happening is we're starting to romanticise relationships in big ways. We start to idealise relationships and think of them particularly sexually in very specific kinds of ways. And these shows kind of feed that Desire and that sense of romance, and we have this overblown sense of what uh, relationships might deliver. I mean, hear it in, in some of the wedding vows that people have for each other. For example, when I'm with you, I can be the person I want to be. I cannot imagine my life without you. You make me smile. You stick up for me. You care for me. You're always interested in me. Um, you ask. You do what I ask and say. If I need help, you will come to my rescue. You hear those kind of words? These are the words from actual wedding vows that people are making to each other. They're all about how the other person will make your life complete. Now, on one hand, we have this over-romanticised view of relationships and of what marriages can deliver. On the other hand, I think we also have a kind of ambivalence. Uh, We recognise that marriages fall apart. Uh, that relationships don't work, and so we see that only too clearly. And we start to wonder about actually the whole idea about marriage because of those things that we observe and see. And so we live in a very interesting culture, an interesting period of time, where those two ideas are clashing together. The over-romanticisation of relationships and marriage and an ambivalence towards what marriage actually is. It's no wonder then that our understanding of marriage is being pushed about and shaped and reshaped and rethought because we live in a context where all those things are taking place. Our culture is shifting and changing. And so as Christians, the question is, well, how do we approach this? How do we think about this in a time of change like this where marriage is being squeezed and challenged because of the particular environment that we live in, the particular culture that we live in? Well, I want to suggest to you that marriage is supported by the Bible. It's not ambivalent about it at all. It likes marriage. God likes marriage. It's a good thing. But at the same time, it doesn't over-romanticise marriage either. It kind of has a particular place for it. And tonight I want to consider those things, the idea that actually the Bible is very supportive of marriage, but it also has a very realistic view of what marriage is is like. Now to do that I want to do it in two ways. Uh, First of all I want to think about uh, the overall scope of the Bible in terms of marriage. I want to think about from creation through to redemption through to consummation. I want to think about the big picture of the Bible. And then I want to come down to looking at this particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, verses 1-7 to in particular and to think about uh, what it has to say about marriage there. So let's start way back uh, in Genesis and God creating marriage. You might remember in Genesis chapter one, we read these words in verse 27. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now a little bit later on in Genesis chapter two, we read these words. Man, as he's talking about the creation of woman, says this, the man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is to be called woman, for she's taken out of a man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. There's a couple of things to notice about God's intentions for marriage at this particular point of creation. You'll notice that they're they're same, but they're different. You notice that Eve is taken out of Adam. They're both made in the image of God. There's a kind of unity there. There's a beautiful unity in terms of God's creation. But they're also different. God created them, male and female. And in that unity and diversity, God brings them together. The result of their coming together is a fruitfulness, is a creativity. It's a creativity that has an impact on the whole of society because actually none of us would be here unless this creativity took place. But it's spoken of in terms of fruitfulness. It's like a blessing. It's a good thing. And as they're united, they become one and they become one flesh. They are joined together in a very unique way. Now there's several things we can say about that. Uh, Patricia Wirikun who uh, was a professor at Sydney University and taught in this area, uh, has talked about the idea that when you actually have sex together you're actually leaving parts of yourself with the other person. It's not just a physical act, there's actually something deep taking place in that union with one another. It has physical impacts yes, but there is much more to it And certainly the idea is that if you have sex with the same person over many, many years, your actual brain starts to change and is wired differently because of what takes place. And so you have a picture here of being united in the one flesh as making a significant difference to a relationship. But perhaps the best way to talk about being united, or another way of talking about being united in the one flesh, is to think of what being fruitful means. You see... Unity in flesh is most evident in children. It's about two DNAs coming together, two creative things happening, coming together. There is one flesh. That's the result of the one flesh union. A child who's made up of both the DNA of the parents. See how it works? And so there's something unique going on here. It's not just about parenting. It's about being fruitful and multiplying. It's about the fruitfulness of a relationship that comes together. It's about something that's unique and significantly different. Now you also notice that uh, there's a monogamous relationship uh, intended here. Uh, there's a leaving and a cleaving, a desire for uh, people to set up a separate family unit, And there's also a place here for sex to be uh, conducted in a safe haven place which is protected and kept safe uh, against others. Now, we know very quickly that in the fall, this is suddenly shattered. Relationships are shattered. Sin enters in the world and all kinds of impacts start to take place. Uh, for example, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, Lamech starts to marry two wives and polygamy is started to be introduced Other forms of marriage are started to enter into. There's adultery, there's divorce, there's all kinds of things that start to take place after sin enters into the world and fractures this relationship that God had intended to be beautiful, a vision of beauty. Now we see that actually in the passage that we looked at this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 to 16. We see that Uh, Paul is actually fairly realistic about relationships and the way that they work out. So, for example, in verse 10, he says, To the married I give this command, not only but I, the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Uh, There's several statements there about marriages and breaking up and what might happen. And can I say, this is not all that's said in the Bible about these things, and so I'd want to explore other places to think kind of deal with this a bit further in terms of divorce and remarriage and those sorts of things, but what I'm trying to acknowledge here is actually Paul, in 1 Corinthians, acknowledges that we live in a fractured world where there will be divorce. There will be things that fall apart in terms of relationships. You might also notice he spends a fair bit of time in verses 12 to 16 talking about being married to someone who's not a believer. Uh, The Corinthian church was a new church. No doubt people were becoming Christians and people Uh, were finding themselves in situations where they were married to people who weren't believers. And as a general principle, I think it's true to say that the Bible encourages Christians to marry other Christians. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had over the years where people have chosen not to do that, and it's produced all kinds of strains and stresses within relationships, actually particularly in relationships to children. So often the children do not want to attend church because one of the partners doesn't want to attend church and, and, and the idea of nurturing the children in faith seems to disappear out the window. And it causes grief and sadness. Um, please talk to me afterwards if you want to talk about that a bit further, but it seems to me that the Bible's very supportive of Christians coming together and not so supportive of uh, people uh, marrying outside um, and, and perhaps marrying non-Christians as a result. We live in a fractured world, things have fallen apart, things are not as God had intended. So what does God do about it? Well, he does something about it. He wants to redeem the situation, he wants to change the situation. And so throughout the Old Testament we start to see examples of how God is redeeming those things himself. So for example, um, the Ten Commandments talks about committing adultery and prohibiting the committing of adultery, remaining monogamous. Uh, That lovely passage from Proverbs we heard about talking about drinking from your own system. Uh, It's just another way of speaking about being monogamous, remaining in the same relationship, uh, belonging together. The Song of Songs actually is a beautiful book talking about the love between a man and a woman and celebrates intimacy and sexual intimacy in a right and proper way. Perhaps most surprisingly, the way we see that Uh, marriage is redeemed throughout the Old Testament is in God's relationship with the people of Israel. It's often described in marriage kind of terms. So for example in Hosea chapter 2 we read these words as God speaks about Israel. Therefore I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I'll give back her vineyards. In that day, declares the Lord, you will Call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. There's this beautiful picture of God pursuing Israel over many, many years and calling her back to himself of a covenant faithfulness of a desire to see the relationship work out, despite all that Israel does, of a desire for a deep intimacy between God and his people. It's a beautiful picture. It's a redeeming picture of marriage. Now, in some ways, this foreshadows what takes place in the New Testament. And we find that in the New Testament it becomes even clearer that marriage is to bear witness To the intimacy that is, we're invited into between Christ and His bride, the Church. Church is called Christ's bride, and marriage is meant to be a foreshadowing of Christ and His bride. Now that might sound a little unusual, but look at passages like Ephesians chapter five. You might like to turn it up. Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-five. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing by washing her with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant as radiant church without stain or wrinkle or without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. There's a, there's a beautiful, loving relationship taking place here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So you hear the echoes of Genesis there. And then quite surprisingly, Paul says this in verse 32 this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the Church. You think all the way through, he's talking about a husband and wife only, but actually, he's pointing to about to Christ and the Church. So the extraordinary thing that Paul is pointing out here is that. When God invented marriage, He already had Jesus' saving work in mind. Jesus calling a bride to Himself in mind, and the marriage is meant to foreshadow that. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that marriage would foreshadow such a thing? But what does consummation? Mean? We've had creation. We've had the fall had the redemption of marriage, but what does it look like in terms of consummation? Well, Revelation chapter 19 gives us a picture of the wedding feast. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory it says, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now listen to the language again, picking up Ephesians 5. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people, set apart, holy people, wash. Remember those words in Ephesians 5? Well, John is picking up that picture in Revelation chapter 19 and pointing to this great wedding of the Lamb. And at this the angel and John fall at their feet and worship him. Jonathan Edwards, an old uh, writer in, in the States, put it this way. Then the church shall be brought to a full enjoyment of her bridegroom. Having all tears wiped away from her eyes, there shall be no more distance or absence. Then Christ will give her his love, that is the church. And she shall drink her food, yea, she shall swim in the ocean of his love. That's his way of describing this beautiful picture, this beautiful ceremony of the Church and the Lamb, of the Bride and the Lamb, of the Bride and Christ coming together in consummation. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? And what's extraordinary is, in that consummation, marriage ends. We discover that in heaven there is no marriage. No. None of our marriages. There's a marriage between Christ and the church. But actually we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we'll have more to say about that when we come to think about singleness and celibacy. But what I want to recognise here is that marriage bears witness to the intimacy between Christ and his people. And that's what it's, it's there for. It's there for to point us in that direction Now we'll go on to notice, and I just as an aside here, we'll go on to notice that celibacy is doing something different. Celibacy bears witness to our temple state, to Christ's faithfulness to us as His pilgrim, his pilgrim people, and to the fact that we will share as brothers and sisters in Christ in all of eternity. And we'll come back to that in three weeks' time. But I want to point out tonight. That marriage foreshadows something very beautiful between Christ and His church. It's into that context, and with that understanding, that we can then come to 1 Corinthians 7 and start to unpack what is actually going on here. Understand that's the trajectory of marriage, understand where that's going. We can then understand in a richer way what is taking place in 1 Corinthians verses, chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Come with me there and we're going to spend some time with those first seven verses. Paul starts out in a way that's a little bit shocking. He says, Now for the matters I wrote to you about, it is good for a man not to marry. Hang on. Haven't we just had a big spiel about how marriage is great and it's God's intention and and what's going on here? Well, first of all, we're not sure what the matters are. We don't have the original writings in terms of what the matters are. But why does he say it's good for a man not to marry? I think this is one of those instances where perhaps we could have translated this a slightly different way. Uh, Digging around a little bit deeper and having a look at what was actually being said here, I think it's actually probably better to say it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what the words actually mean. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, you say, well, that's just worse. (laughs) You can't marry, you can't touch a woman. Right, okay, so I bump someone in the train, there's a problem. What is going on here? Well, of course, to touch a woman here is a, is a euphemism. Uh, it's about touching a woman sexually. And in fact, in a particular context, I think what it's actually saying is you are not to treat women as objects of sexual gratification. Now, the context to which Paul is writing is quite different to ours. There are some similarities, but it's quite different to ours. Very patriarchal society. Men owned everything, their wives, their slaves, their houses, everything. They owned everything. It was fairly typical for men to be married at 25 and to marry wives who were 15. They were The power ratio was there. They were just in charge. They looked after everything. One of the other interesting things that took place is that men had sex with their wives for procreation, not for pleasure you had sex with people outside your marriage for pleasure. So you might have sex with your slaves or with those outside the home with prostitutes for pleasure. So when Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, he's saying something really radical to these men and to these women, actually. He's saying do not treat women as objects of sexual gratification. That is not God's intention. Now once we understand that, the second phrase becomes even more interesting. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each one of you should have sex with his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul's saying, you should not be conducting sexual activity that belongs in a marriage outside your marriage. But it is occurring and you need to stop. And you must have sex with your own wife and each woman with her own husband. Now this would have been a shock to both men and to women. The women would not have been expecting their husbands to have sex with them for pleasure. This is kind of a wake-up call to them. Like, wow, this, something's going to change here in this relationship. Men, on the other hand, wouldn't have been thinking about that either. And all of a sudden, their desires are being required to be curbed and left only in their relationship, which, of course, is consistent with what we've understood in God's creation of marriage. Now, we agree with this. This makes sense to us. It's actually part of the way our culture has been shaped and formed. We can see how that would make sense, how it's good for people to... Uh, treat each other properly sexually. We can see how sexual gratification can go wrong. We understand that. And so in some ways it's not as radical for us as it was for those who were first hearing these words. However, what comes next is something that's really radical for our culture. And actually the Bible has a habit of doing this. It continues to ch- challenge every culture and every age at every time at different points. And it's meant to make us feel uncomfortable. Because if we were just comfortable with what it said, then we'd just be repeating what our culture says. It always challenges our culture, always challenges us to think in a different way. And these next statements really do challenge us, particularly of those of you who are in married relationships. Verses 3 and 4. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to a husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Kind of reflect on the Song of Songs, I am my beloved and he is mine. It's kind of a statement like that. Can you just see how radical that is within a relationship? You belong to each other mutually not just to yourself. Now, of course, we're not speaking about relationships here that have gone wrong. We're not talking about relationships where there's violence. We're talking about relationships that are working well, that are consistent with the way God has called them to be. We're talking about relationships where there's a oneness of flesh. But do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying to the wife, you don't have authority over your own body. And he's saying to the husband, you don't have authority over your body. Now those are pretty radical things to say. They involve entrusting ourselves to another person, giving our lives over to another person, acknowledging that another person has some say in our life. Now of course this is done very much in the context of love. Ephesians 5 puts it this way, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one can ever hate their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does so the church. You see how other person-centred this is? How concerned with the other person Paul is at this point? It's a sacrificial love. Now, of course, this is complicated to work out. If you're going to serve the other person's needs, if you're going to actually sacrificially give yourself to another person, you're going to need to understand their needs. You're going to need to understand them deeply, understand what's going on in their lives, listen carefully and thoughtfully. If you've been given that responsibility, it's going to require an exercise of love. It's going to require discipline on your own part. It's going to require a thoughtfulness about the way you enter into the relationship. It's going to require a realism about what is taking place. And that's exactly where Paul goes. See what he says in verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come again so that Satan will not attempt uh, tempts tempt you because of lack of self-control. Now people have used these verses in all kinds of different ways. I know guys have actually used this and said, well look, you know, I don't want to be tempted with lack of self-control so we must have sex now um, because otherwise I'm going to be tempted and you'll find me disappearing off and committing adultery. Look, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think Paul is naturally recognising that within a given relationship there are desires and real desires, but they also need to be curved. They need to be thought about. They need to be considered. Now, of course, it raises the whole question of how often within a marriage should people have sex? If you're going to abstain, how often should you have sex? And just for fun, um, there was a rabbi around a similar period of time that had some ideas about this. So let me tell you what he thought. He said men of independent means should have sex every day. Uh, Workmen, twice a week. Ass drivers, once a week. Camel drivers, once a month. And sailors, at least once every six months. With good reason, of course. Paul's not talking like that. Those are interesting guidelines. I don't think we should take any notice of them. Now, being Christ-like in a marriage, thinking about the desires of one another, means sometimes actually deciding to have less sex for the sake of your spouse. Deciding that the best way you can serve them is by having less sex. It's not about just having your desires satisfied. There's a kind of funny thing in our culture, I think, just as a kind of aside that's developed with this idea of romanticised marriage and sex. And it it seems to me that it's developed because of some misunderstandings, I think, actually around uh, people like Freud. Uh, Freud seemed to suggest in his early work that uh, the suppression of sexual desire would lead to some kind of harm within people. Now the truth is his later work didn't say that. Uh, and in fact it makes no sense to say that because we don't actually want people to be acting out on their desire, sexual desires whenever they want to. We know that that's just not good. That's a horrible thing to take place. So we actually know that sexual desires need to be curved. We need know that that actually is a part of life. And Paul's just simply saying in a marriage that's going to happen as well. There are plenty of reasons that uh, this can take place in a marriage. Sometimes it's because of pregnancy, sometimes illness, sometimes physical separation, sometimes impotence. Sometimes it's just plain difficult in relationships. And the giving of yourself to one another is a difficult thing. I know this, I've been married for 30 years. This is true, this is real. This is the marital long haul considered realistically, honestly there will be times where you need to curb your own desire, but it does not make you less a person doesn't make your marriage less you're still a complete human being if you're not expressing yourself sexually, we all have sexual desires, of course we do Now Paul is writing into that context and saying hey, within a marriage you're going to have to consider these things. You're going to have to live out these things. You're going to have to think carefully about the way you treat one another sexually in that, in your relationships with one another. Because actually you don't want Satan's attention. You don't want to be led astray. You want to get Marriage right. We want to see it as it truly is. Not over-romanticised, but a commitment. One that God is behind. Now, in some ways, this is a very tall order. Not in some ways, it is a very tall order. This is just huge, and to have this kind of marriage. A Christian view of marriage that's unromanticized, that's not ambivalent towards marriage, is a big thing. Recognising that we're same but different. Recognising that procreation's involved, that we're bringing about fruitfulness in new human beings. Committing ourselves to monogamous relationships and companionships. Leaving and cleaving. Seeing marriage as a safe haven for sex. These are, are big things. How is it possible to live this way? Particularly when we can see many instances and perhaps ourselves have experienced failure in these areas. Well, I think we should lift our eyes to Jesus. Because he is the one who sacrificed himself for his bride. You might remember back in 1 Corinthians 6, if you were with us when we were doing that part of the series, we heard these words. Or do you not know that you were wrongdo that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this is what some of you were. Is the forgiveness, is the power, is the strength. You were washed. Remember the images in Revelation? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of it's only through the power of the gospel that we get to live out marriages like this, that we get to live out the pattern of this kind of marriage. As we recognise that we are sinful, that we are flawed, and yet at the same time, we are deeply loved by Jesus Christ, more deeply loved than we'd ever hoped for. It's only as we understand those truths that we won't commit ourselves to a romanticised view of marriage. That we won't commit ourselves to a kind of marriage that is dead. But we will commit ourselves to a marriage that is alive and real and meaningful and full of love because we understand the radical truthfulness of Christ and the gospel and what he's done for us it's only as we're shaped by his power and in his strength can we ourselves commit ourselves to those kind of marriages. Marriages where we honour God in all that we do. If you're married here this evening, I invite you to entrust yourself to Jesus. Ask him to give you the strength to live out this kind of marriage. If you're not married, entrust yourself to Jesus he is the one who will walk beside you in whatever context you find yourself in and support your married friends encourage their married lives to be honouring to God